can I ask you to introduce yourself? My name's Tristan Cork. I'm a senior reporter at Bristol Live. Can you tell me a bit about when you came to Bristol Live and and what it is you do on a daily basis? I'm uh, just a general news reporter, really. For a good 15 or 16 years, I was on the Western Daily Press, which is the Bristol Post's sister paper. I was kind of linked to the stuff that they were doing. You know, we were working together on lots of things. And in May 2016, I moved across to the Bristol Post. And after that, I've just been a general reporter there. You said you've been, you moved across to Bristol Live in 2016. Yeah, in 2016. So in terms of the Bijan Ibrahimi case, I was obviously aware of it and had reported on it for the Western Daily Press in 2013 and again in 2015 when the police officers were jailed. In 2016, I really took it up as an investigation because what happened was there was obviously lots of inquiries going on. Two police officers had been jailed, but no one from Bristol City Council had been censored or there'd been no publication of any reports into actually what happened. What I think was shocking was that a lot of the focus from the case itself and the trial of Lee James, people were very much focused on the days before the murder and the actual murder itself. What hadn't come out was a lot of the backstory, a lot of the background, which went back years. Tell me a bit about what you know about that background and why it's significant. So what we discovered and what the Independent Office for Police Conduct investigation found and the Safe for Bristol Review. So all of these reports came out subsequent years when I was on the Bristol Post. And that told a story that went back way back to sort of 10 years maybe. And it told the story that Bijan Ibrahimi had been known to the authorities and had been complaining of being racially harassed and just the victim of antisocial behaviour for many years. And rather than him being seen as a victim by the authorities and by that, I mean, the police and Bristol City Council, he was instead seen as a problem. He was a serial complainer to them. And just going back, he'd been moved, I think, twice by the housing department at Bristol City Council, because wherever he went, he became the victim of this kind of bullying and antisocial behaviour, and in some cases, physical attacks. Was there any reason why he would always be a victim to these kind of antisocial behaviours and attacks on him? It's hard to say, and I think it would be unfair to him to say he attracted it, but I have a horrible feeling it's just the fact that he was different. From what I can gather from family and the reports and and the people who knew him. He's quite a cultured, gentle soul who was Iranian and a refugee and he was also disabled as well. So he stood out and was different and also he was vulnerable as a person. That unfortunately attracts, if you want to look at it sort of psychologically, that attracts bullies. Bullies always go for people who are vulnerable and people who aren't going to fight back so much. But he also was someone who, you know, he knew when things weren't right. So he would complain and he would go to the authorities. One of the most tragic things I think I've discovered in the reports and in the background context that I read was that even when he was being abandoned by the police, in those last few days and hours, he was still putting his trust in them to 
help him. He, he thought they were his friends and they were there to help him, but actually they let him down. I read stuff about the kind of exchanges between police officers. I think it's some of the ones that were fired, actually, which showed exactly their feelings towards him, which really, really kind of highlighted how they thought he was a nuisance. I think that the whole thing about him being a nuisance, it was built up over time. And I think that by the end, they didn't know that it was going to be the end. Obviously, they didn't know that he was going to get murdered. They should have seen that that it was going that way. And that was one of their faults. But they obviously didn't know. But in the time leading up to it, as things were getting worse and worse, rather than taking a step back and realising what was happening, they just perceived his complaints as getting worse and worse. He was being more bothersome to them and more tiresome. and. Therefore, their reaction to him, it wasn't, you know, something serious is happening here. It was, oh God, not him again. And I think that was ultimately, fundamentally where they failed him. And obviously you were talking about his vulnerability and unfortunately that the attraction of bullies to him and that experience that he had. And that obviously leads on to his experience in Cadbury Crescent, which you say that you've been to. Can yeah. you describe it? Cadbury Crescent, obviously it's a Crescent Road um, that cur- curves in, uh, in in a sort of semicircle, two entrances at either end. Where he lived, in fact, was a block of flats in an L shape and they are maisonettes on top of each other. So it's four stories, two, two stories to a maisonette. And then there's a there's a walkway halfway up for the people who live on the top two floors. And it's in Broomhill, which is when you're there. I mean, this is probably my take on it being someone who lives fairly close to the centre of Bristol and works in the centre of Bristol and kind of knows quite well the centre of Bristol. When you're out there, it really does feel like you're on the edge of the city in a kind of both in a physical sense, but also in a this, the sense of place you have about it is it feels on the margins. You know, it's quite hard to get to this. There's, there's like one bus and it's at the end of the bus route. And when you're there, it feels like you're a long way from the rest of Bristol. I mean, it's not a particularly deprived place that you'd think, think of with, you know, burnt out cars everywhere and graffiti and stuff. It's not like that. It's a long established estate, which has got shops and uh, pubs, but it's, it's got a long-standing community that were there probably since it was built in the sort of sixties. And what I guess the issue is, is that when people like Bijan come in, they very much stand out. You know, if Bijan Ibrahimi was living in Easton, he would be among people who, to put a final point on it, look like him, you know, aware of his culture, he would interact with them. But out there in, in Broomhill, his own vulnerabilities in his own person, you know, in his own personal circumstances, were exacerbated by where he was put by Bristol City Council. And let's not forget, he originally lived in Bedminster, which is a lot more in the centre of Bristol and a bit more kind of multicultural. And he'd suffered from racist bullying there. He had some one of his neighbours poured some boiling water on him, I think. And this was good sort of ten years ago, and they moved him, so they immediately had him. You know, he was the victim of of effectively what was domestic violence and they moved him out of there but they moved him to this community and the first place they moved him to in Broomhill the same thing happened again you know he, he said I can't live here my neighbours are, are trying to get me and instead of moving him and, and actually sitting down and thinking where you know where where where, where can he live where, where should he where would be best for him to live they literally just moved him around the corner and of course the community there is quite 
tight knit and people, you know, people have friends in different streets. And so when he moved his quotes reputation as being an outsider and being a little bit of a weirdo, they, you know, they, people would describe him as a little bit of a weirdo because he was a bit different. That reputation went with him round the corner into Capgrave Crescent. So they didn't solve the problem at all. In fact, they probably made it worse. Him being moved to the people there, certainly to Lee James, who, who murdered him, was a sign there was something wrong with him when there wasn't at all. Talking of that something wrong, I mean, ultimately what led to his death was this idea that he was a sex offender, a paedophile, yeah. to be more exact. What do you know about that? The housing officers and the police, when, when he, was, he presented them with complaints that he was the victim of harassment from his neighbours and antisocial behaviour from his neighbours and, and, you know, they would intimidate him. And when he presented that to them, their advice in part was document it. So he had a camera with him to be, you know, because he thought, I need to get evidence. They, you know, if they don't believe me, I need to film this happening to me or photograph it. So he would often take photos if the local residents or children or whatever outside, whatever they did, chuck stones at his windows or knock on his door and run away, whatever it would be, that kind of low level, but intensely annoying antisocial behaviour. His defence or his, his, his means of dealing with that was to take pictures. And what that meant was that in the eyes of the bullies that was further evidence he had this kind of reputation there were whispers about him all the time that were false and when he would go out he would take a photo they would be like what are you taking pictures of my kids for and that was one of the triggers and this interview um, one of the things that Lee James said was you know he was taking photos of my kids he took that as being a kind of confrontational thing to do that belief and that kind of rumour was absolutely exacerbated and, you know, in the eyes of the local residents, confirmed when the police turned up and actually took Bijan away rather than the people who were bullying him. So when they did that, amidst complaints that, you know, that he's, a, he's taking pictures of my kids, he's a, he's a paedophile, he's a, you know, snooper or whatever, when they took him away, in the eyes of the people who lived there, certainly in the eyes of Lee James, that was proof that the police were on their side. They were on their side. Police were on their side because he was a problem. And that ultimately led to his, led to his murder. So let's sort of fast forward to when you got involved with the story and started digging out all this stuff, you know, because lots of people, that his family were asking questions about yeah. why Bristol City Council, nothing had been done to look into their involvement in it, which was... Pivotal, which was, you know, at the, the very crux of it, really. Have you spoken to people in that estate? And what do you feel like their attitude is to what happened? I, I've spoken to people who live there. And I think that there's a, obviously a absolute shock and horror at what happened to Bijan. Well, there is a community there that is probably ashamed of what happened. It's very difficult for them to kind of to deal with because it did end so horribly and violently. I think now there's a sense of, well, you know, wanting to get on with it and to kind of leave it behind. But there will be, unfortunately, forever known as the place where this happened. And I'm not sure really that they, it's difficult to say because everyone's an individual there, obviously. But 
I think that I, I'm not sure that they have the people who live there collectively have kind of confronted their own part in what happened. In terms of what you've encountered from Bristol City Council, if you can go there, yeah. what's the general yeah. of attitude? There's been a couple of reviews into what happened and the most startling was the IOPC, the Independent Office for Police Conduct. And I had a long interview with the lady who undertook that review and it's actually one of the last things she did in her post as heading that organisation in this area. She went as far as she could, I could tell, effectively saying that the response of the police and Bristol City Council as organisations was institutionally racist because it wasn't individual people. While there was police officers who've been sent to prison for their, for their specific moments of gross misconduct that they undertook, Collectively, as an organisation, the way that they dealt with Bijan Ibrahimi was institutionally racist. Effectively, they did not realise that what was happening to him was in part because of his race. And then the way that they responded to his complaints and the counter allegations by the local community, where they took the side of the local community, that in itself was, you know, they did not exercise the kind of levels of analysis on an equalities basis. They had a group of white people saying there's something wrong with him and then him saying they're all ganging up on me and they took the side of the white people. You can't imagine it happening. Lots of people kind of can't get their heads around what institutional racism means in this particular context or any, in any context. We've seen other instances of controversy involving the police, particularly with something like the tasering of Ras Judah Dumbi in Easton a couple of years ago. The way to kind of look at it, I always think, is you can't imagine what happened to Bijan Ibrahimi happening to him if his name was Brian Abraham and he was from Knoll and he'd been moved to Brislington and he was a little, you know, he was a little bit of an old ball but harmless, and people were ganging up on him. If the police had turned up there, they would have dealt with it differently. You can't imagine they would have done the same thing if that was the case. And in a similar way with the tasering of Judah, Adumbi, you can't imagine him ending up being tasered if he was a white man in his 60s walking in his dog in Clifton on a Saturday morning. So in a sense, it's very difficult to kind of grasp as a, as a specific concept, but it's almost like if you want to know what institutional racism looks like, it looks like this. This is an outcome of being institutionally racist. I think that's a really good way of describing it. In terms of how this has emotionally or professionally affected you since you, when you started reporting it, maybe when you were in it, because I know it's mm. quite a while after now. What would you say about that? Um, I think it's been an eye-opener. Because I think for me personally, as a white man, it's difficult for me to grasp what overt racism would be like. I'm never going to experience that really. And I think that actually it's only when you see cases like this that you can kind of at least comprehend what it means to be, you know, what this concept of institutional racism is. So it has been very 
you know, this is a kind of uh, weird way of putting it, but it has taught me a lot about how systems work, about how things get failed, about how people get failed. And I can see now that this kind of thing, I've never come across it before in my life before, really. We often, as reporters, deal with people who claim police brutality or council negligence. The council is evicting someone because they're a problem. And often the people who complain about these things, you know, they, they effectively, the police might as well have been a little bit over the top, but there was, a, there was reason for them getting arrested in the first place, let's say. But in this case, it was this what marked this, marked this out for me personally was that Bijan Ibrahimi had done nothing wrong. And effectively, what he had done wrong in the eyes of the police was be someone who completely didn't just shut up and take the abuse he was getting. His main crime or his main fault was to trust in the police and ask them to do something. And that was a real eye-opener for me that that would happen in 2013, as it turned out. There was this kind of failure amongst the police. It wasn't that they let him down and just didn't attend or didn't go to his cries for help. You know, there was the kind of lawlessness about it. The police were very much involved in his case. They were there a lot. They would go to his house a lot. They uh, Quite often they would say, oh, you know, we'll come round tomorrow or whatever and never turn up. However, especially in the days and hours before he died, they were right in there making judgments. The most awful thing for me was that, you know, this kind of idea that this thought and that comes out in the calls when you read the transcripts of the call and stuff, this idea that these people were there supposed to protect him and they actually exacerbated the danger he was in. 